Uh, today, we have Dr. Mary Shia with us and we'll be discussing boosting women in high-tech sales job roles. More broadly, uh, what we're trying to capture from her is how overall uh, leaders are thinking about diversity, inclusion, uh, and building diverse teams, specifically, which is very, very important in the revenue teams. Um, so overall about uh, Dr. Mary Shia, we are very, very excited to have this conversation with her because she not only comes from a great background, former CRO, principal analyst at Forrester, and currently the VP, uh, Global Innovation Evangelist at Outreach, but also she comes from a very rich uh, sales experience background. And personally, we are very keen to have this chat and hear your views and your vision for what the future of sales look like. Uh, very excited to also hear how uh, leaders like you and you work with so many different organizations through outreach are thinking of enabling the sales teams through different tools, uh, helping them to amplify their productivities. Um, and she also runs a podcast, award-winning podcast, where she discusses and identifies new and disruptive ways that people are building new revenue opportunities in this economic downturn. It's always, we hear all sorts of things that sales cycles are longer, decision-making is much longer, all the bad news is, but there are a lot of innovation uh, that is happening. So how is she trying to find out those innovative uh, minds and trying to share that with the uh, global ecosystem? So we, we would love to hear your thoughts on that as well. And thank you so much for taking out the time and uh, for joining us for this webinar. Well, it's my pleasure to be here, Smart. And good morning, good evening, good afternoon to everyone. And I can't wait to dive into the topics. There's so much to discuss. And you're right, it's a difficult time economically. But within these times, we find massive disruption, technology and otherwise. And so the level of, level of innovation that's happening is just off the charts. And so I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation with you. And, and you've mentioned it right, that there's a lot of disruption happening and this is the right time because in recession, most of the uh, disruptive ideas have come up. You talk about most of the startups that, uh, that are well recognized today. So, and sales overall has been very dynamic. So how, how in your opinion, has sales transformed uh, from what it was 20 years back to what it is today? And how are some of the leaders keeping pace with it? Such a great question. I mean, there's been massive transformation. And I think that uh, Satya Nadal said in the midst of the COVID um, pandemic that we had digitally transformed more in two months than five years. And that's really true. I think the way we go to market and the way we sell today is fundamentally different than how we did it five years ago, 10 years ago, and even 20 years ago. And yet there's some things from old school that you never want to lose, right? The empathy, the ability to listen, the ability to be an advocate for your client um, and just strong networking skills. Those are skills that I think, you know, you never lose. But what we're seeing now is that sellers really need to take a digital first approach to going to market. And that doesn't mean they're not going to meet with customers and prospects in person, but they may do the first 80% or 90% of those meetings virtually or remotely. So that means you have to have really good skills in terms of being able to connect authentically in synchronous and asynchronous video. You need to be able to use social media platforms to build community and share ideas and um, do digital good deeds on a daily basis. And you need to be able to um, understand how to quickly interpret data and understand what your next action is going to be. So it's a little bit of a different uh, world. And some of the skill set 
of sellers is really different. So digital first, data-driven. Uh, another thing they need that's really different from the past, Smart, is they need to be collaborative. What we're seeing is large buying groups on the buy side, and then you need to match those on the sell side. So sellers need to be that um, collaborator that's going to bring all the right people to the conversation at the right moment. I love the insights and uh, specifically how through your groundbreaking research, you enable the 600 people strong team at Outreach. If you could share some perspective on uh, what trends are you seeing through your research? Yeah. What has changed in the last six months now that we're in, in this situation? Yeah, that's such a great question because I'm always doing quantitative research, which means I'm going out and surveying sales leaders, salespeople, and also business leaders. And I just surveyed 500 plus business leaders globally to understand how they were adapting to the global economic downturn and how that was going to impact their um, planning, their strategic planning and their growth planning for next year, 2023. What we're seeing is that most companies have actually lowered their targets for this year. So they've already accepted that um, the uh, overall revenue is going to be a little bit lower. But what the market's telling us, not just at Outreach, but everywhere, Smart, now you know this because you're an entrepreneur, is we're moving from a growth at all cost environment to measured, profitable, predictable, efficient revenue. And that's one of the things that Outreach helps with. We have a sales execution platform that helps every member of the revenue team from you know, CRO down to customer success or post-sale personnel deliver efficient, predictable revenue. So that's the biggest change is, you know, we're seeing um, targets being reduced, but more focused on margin growth. We're seeing smaller, more agile sales organizations, but we're seeing those sellers be more productive. So you're seeing productivity across a, a broader range of sellers and you're seeing technology have a critical role in the ability to execute your go-to-market strategy. Whereas, you know, maybe five or 10 years ago, you just thought, well, you know, if I have Salesforce or Dynamics, like, you know, that's all I need, right? And so I'm not saying you don't need CRM and HubSpot or whatever it is you use, but, um, you know, there are other innovative technology platforms that drive massive efficiencies help you engage more effectively with personalization and knowledge of where the buyer is in that journey and um, that allow you to do it in a scalable and predictable manner. And so those are some of the big changes I'm seeing. Um, and different technologies, people behavior in buying has evolved. How have um, you upskilled yourself? Are there a few hacks that, that have helped you to adapt to the, the current selling procedure? Yeah, I mean, I was, you mentioned my background and I was at Forrester as a principal analyst for seven years. And so I had such a wonderful opportunity of speaking to people like yourself day in and day out, right? People who are launching new companies, coming up with new business models, launching new technologies, making AI and automation deliver better and more impactful business uh, outcomes. And so I would have hundreds of calls with CEOs and founders like you at Forrester. And so that was one way that I could stay so far ahead of the market because people like you are the true innovators. You know, you're two, three, four years ahead of uh, more traditional and lagging markets. 
So I still do that in my role at outreach. So I'm constantly taking meetings with new companies. Maybe they're, they're not an outreach customer or they're not going to be a customer. And I talk to people. So I would encourage the folks who are listening today, keep your ears to the ground. Talk to everybody. Go to events like Saster. That's where we met, right? Go to events like Forrester's B2B Marketing and Sales event. Um, come to Outreach Unleash or our Women in Sales event and talk to everybody and learn as much as you can that way. That's super fast. Another thing you can do is um, my colleague, Matthew Flug, we're very close partners. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a boomer and he's a millennial and we cross pollinate each other with new ways of thinking and new skills. So he helps me uh, with certain things and I help him with other things. So think about mentorship. Uh, can you partner up with someone who has maybe more traditional selling skills? They know how to read the room. They know how to close the deal. They know how to, um, you know, sort of suss out when someone's bullshitting them or whatever. And, you know, partner up with them with someone else who can help you learn how to use the technology um, to engage in like really customized and exciting fashion. So, you know, those are a couple, couple of different hacks that I have. I, what do you do? I think it's always um, listening to the customers. One, what you yeah. said, keep your ears to the ground. That's one. Second, uh, what we've also done at High Quotient after obviously a certain stage, um, what has worked really well for us is building a sandbox where people are just trying moonshots every single day. Because you know yeah. what what works, what doesn't work, what might work. So from that standpoint, bringing people who have very high risk appetite, who are very comfortable with uncertainty, and who are very comfortable pulling off moonshots every single day, facing that failure and coming, showing up tomorrow again. So through that, we've also been able to uh, find our ways of growing very fast in the last two months. So that's just after we stabilized our uh, a core business. Once the product was stabilized, we had done zero to one there. You're selling to enterprises. The feedback was positive. And then you were thinking, hey, how do we sell faster? How do we grow faster? So that's one thing that has really worked. Second, I think it's always, uh, as you said, talking to people. So in the last one month or so, and that's uh, how we also met, as you rightly mentioned, uh, engaging with the leaders out there to, to bounce off few uh, very different ideas to say that, hey, do you see potential in this idea? And it could be very far from your business. So while we have a business, we are building both, but also it's to say that how do we build value on the side? So that has been another interesting avenue for us to keep experimenting, exploring, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I really like that a lot, the, especially the culture of the moonshots. And I think about Google and um, the innovation that they created back in the day, but you do have quite an interesting culture at a higher quotient and you've been able to accomplish so much in a very relatively short period of time. So um, the cultural dynamics of innovation, 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 and even allowing people to fail, right? Um, because I don't think we talk about failure enough. I know from my, the work that I don't do with venture capitalists that they oftentimes like to invest in an entrepreneur who's actually had a failed business they have to understand why the business failed. Um, but if they truly deeply understand why the business failed, then those investors know that mistakes never going to happen again. So um, having a culture where it's okay to, you know, make a mistake and take a step back drives ex exponential innovation. And um, I think you're doing a wonderful job at that. No, hundred percent. And in fact, uh, the first startup that I did, which was called WeCoach Academy. So that was EdTech where yeah. at the core, what we were trying to do is help interviewees become better 
at interviewing and cracking different job opportunities. So it's after that failure happened and we worked uh, a lot for that one, one and a half year, we realized that maybe the business has to be built on the B2B side. So I think that yeah. failure led to the learning that how do we plan the GTM for higher quotient? And that's how the journey also started. And these small failures we encounter every single day. And world is moving very, very fast. For example, three months back, we were leveraging LinkedIn to generate leads. Before that, it was call, emails, and most of the people who are in sales outbound would understand that calls don't do the magic they used to do earlier. So how do right. you keep innovating? Because every single day, LinkedIn is changing its algorithm. Every single day, the call uh, plus email impact uh, is also getting impact uh, changed. So a lot of things are happening. Yeah, um, absolutely. absolutely. That's uh, really interesting. The other thing I think that I like to do is, um, because I love research, is I'm constantly putting research out there on social platforms and engaging in that conversation and um, drawing people into the conversation. And I think that's that's a, a, a really interesting way of not only brand building, but understanding who's going to be receptive to your ideas if you want to prospect them. Exactly. And one of these uh, research that you talk about, and I've see, seen that in some of your posts, you talk a lot about women in sales. And yes. as an industry, obviously, we all know that sales is very male dominated. And somewhere, uh, there's also a research that I read, I think it came from you to say that um, women are better in sales and revenue generation. So yeah. if you could talk a bit more about how could organizations take few steps in the direction to uh, build a more diverse team, promote women in sales. Yeah, um, that's a real passion of mine, as you know. So thank you for letting me have the platform to talk about it. But traditionally, the sales organization has very, been very homogeneous. Um, you know, over here in the States, very uh, white male dominated people in their 30s. And I think everyone has a stereotypical vision of what that looks like. But recently, a lot of research has been done, whether it's from, from out of uh, uh, HBR or LinkedIn or Forrester or even my own research that shows that women um, tend to perform better than their male counterparts at uh, delivering revenue. So both at the IC, individual contributor level, manager and uh, sales leader level, sales uh, female sales leaders deliver about 12% more than their male counterparts in terms of ability to hit quota. But we find more broadly that diverse organizations just deliver business results. And there's lots of data that now shows that. So I think even though we all know it's the right thing to do, now business leaders are very focused on bringing more women into the sales organization. And um, unfortunately, we've seen a little bit of a decline post-COVID where uh, we lost um, probably just under 10% of women in the workforce or a little bit more than that. And um, so we're seeing a decline uh, of women in B2B sales. And now as we see um, you know, some of the, the layoffs and the rifts that are happening over here in the States, I'm just encouraging organizations to be very mindful uh, on looking at underrepresented folks and making sure that um, there is a diverse selling organization. So the research that I did showed that 74% of business buyers wanted to buy from an organization that um, looked like the world around them. No big surprise, Smart, you know? Um, and we're also seeing that 76% of business buyers said, if I don't feel that the company that I'm gonna partner with has values that match my company and my own, 
I'm not going to work with that company. I'm going to go to a different provider. And so in the past, at least here over in North America, you saw that mantle being taken up by the B2C brands. So Ben and Jerry's ice cream, Coach, Nike, you know, some some of the brands that we all know uh, very well. And now in the business world, we're seeing that CEOs can't remain sort of apolitical, that not only their sales force or their 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 workforce made up of Gen Z and, and millennials are are telling them we want to know what we stand for, but their buyers are saying the same thing. And we're going to see on RFPs and a range of different things that companies have that have diverse representation um, are going to uh, achieve more sales. Yeah, and that is so true. I think the two points that you mentioned that the talent attraction, um, right. everybody now is not just looking for the compensation, is not looking for career growth. They're looking for something deeper, purpose and values. So that same is... And that's very interesting because earlier, I think a decade back, five years back, most of the buyers would just look for, hey, what is the value, a tra right. transactional value that we can drive from this product? Today, it is much more that, hey, do we align at vision level? Do we align at purpose level, value level? So yes. you're, you're very right. And we are also very recently seeing this. Obviously, it's much more deeper in the talent because of great yeah. reshuffle and all of those things. But that trend is definitely coming in the buying uh, behavior as well. Well, what I'm seeing on the buy side is that we're definitely seeing a lot of consolidation for obvious reasons, but um, business leaders want to have less technology providers, but they want to have a core set of providers that they can really derive deep and expansive value from versus having, you know, 12 different types of tools or point solutions smart. So yes, um, companies are starting to look more deeply at what do you stand for? What is your product roadmap? What is your vision? What kind of philanthropic, you know, philanthropy do you do? And how do you give back to society writ large? But I want to go back to talent because um, I think there, you know, we were talking about how has things changed and maybe five or 10 years ago, you thought, well, salespeople want, they want a flexible schedule. They want to travel and get a break away from home life. Right. And they want to make a lot of money. Well, my research shows that sellers are motivated by many other things than that. They want to uh, work for a company where there's transparency. I understand what your hiring practices are. I, I understand that there's no bias. I want to understand how I'm going to get paid, promoted, um, how my territories are going to get set, and what are you going to do for my career, and what are you going to do back for society? And um, so it's a, a little bit of a different uh, dynamic. No, I, I absolutely agree on uh, the transparency part. And uh, this is also coming from, I had a conversation with Ryan, uh, the CEO of LinkedIn, uh, two weeks oh, back. And then we were amazing. discussing that, how uh, skill as a currency is bringing that transparency. And that's the reason that LinkedIn is also focusing a lot on skills, not just at the entry level to say that, hey, how do we take away the degrees and move to a more skill-based hiring? Because that is transparent, that is bias-free. And that lets you build the right talent who can perform within the organization. But the second part is also that within once somebody has joined the organization, they want to understand, hey, what are my gaps? Where am I good at? Where am I not good at? Uh, the company should invest in the gaps. And all that process has to be very, very transparent. So that's binary for the candidate or for the employee and the employer. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I completely agree. So, you know, 
we have the ability to provide that kind of transparency now with technology and data analytics. So we can lean into the science and provide the transparency that folks are looking for. Totally agree. And we also have our first uh, question from Georgina. Um, how important would it, how important is it to be aggressive in sales? Success in sales is equal to what percentage planning plus what percentage aggression and attitude? Very mathematical. Wow. Yeah. So that's a that's a loaded question. So I think when I think about aggression, I I think that that sort of dials into some of the stereotypical ways I would think of male based uh, sellers. And so when I work with uh, different types of organizations and some of our customers, I coach them to actually look at their job descriptions. I would not ever use that word aggressive. I would do, you know top tier, you know, top notch prospecting skills, the ability to listen effectively and link your solution to the buyer's, um, you know, challenges, the ability to move an opportunity forward in a way that matches the buying motion of uh, your customers and so on and so forth. And I think certainly the planning and the researching is important because everyone now expects you not to just know what industry you're in smart or what the broad industry trends are in the talent tech, you know, HR tech, but to really understand them as a persona, what they're challenged with at work on a daily basis. What were the last podcasts they were on? What events they've gone to recently, what their last post was, where they are in the buying journey, what they did in the dark funnel on your website before they actually came to the conversation. So um, I think aggression is probably less uh, relevant in today's selling environment. Well, that's a great answer. And we have another question that says, uh, do you think during the current recession, startups should aggressively raise and grow or should they just try to survive through the phase very conservatively? Well, I mean, I think uh, survival is just a prescription for disaster in sales, right? I mean, you have to go all in and the people who go into sales, I think you kind of describe them at the outset of this conversation. We um, like a little bit of risk in our life. We uh, like a little bit of excitement. Maybe we're the types of people that like to go bungee jumping or skydiving. Um, um, so, you know, I think you have to go all in. And what I love about uh, some of the conversations that I've had is that even though it's a tough environment for talent right now, you're coming up with four or five, six different types of growth hacks that are enabling you to shorten sales cycles and still close business, even though it's a difficult environment. So I think if you're not moving forward, you're moving behind in sales. Use this as an opportunity to innovate and find new ways to effectively um, advance and close business. And in your experience, uh, before we move, move to the next question, in your experience, um, what have been some of the catalysts that have helped organizations to build very high-performance sales team? Yeah, I mean, I think, as, as, as we know, uh, the culture gets set at the top, right? So I always start at the board, and I kind of look at what does the board look like, and is, is, you know, is there diversity represented at the board and at the executive team level? And... Um, separate from that, then you have to have, is there a performance culture? Um, is there a culture of, of winning, not at all costs, Mars, but winning the right way um, and through ethical selling practices and everything else in terms of how you run your business. But look, I mean, 
you've got to enjoy a little bit of a competitive drive. Um, so high performing sales organizations are uh, going to be healthy, competitive. They're, you're going to have role plays. You're going to have pitch competitions. You're going to have growth hacks. You're going to have product hacks. You're going to do all kinds of different things to come up with ways to win, regardless of what the marketplace looks like. Very interesting. And we have another question. Uh, is there a particular GTM playbook that startups can follow or is it totally about figuring your own strategy? I think that's a very loaded question again. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it depends on, um, it probably don't have enough uh, information to fully give that answer what it deserves, Marth, but you know, it depends on what kind of business you're in. Certainly if you're in SaaS, uh, there are a hundred playbooks you can read, right? And if you're in sales, you know, there's a hundred selling books you can read, like uh, Predictable Revenue was one that was very influential in my early career. And then um, Justin Michael and Julian Njimski wrote another book that um, looks at, uh, you know, selling in a highly technological type of environment. So, I mean, you know, the resources are out there. You kind of need to kind of find out what what's the right type of resources and playbook for your niche. And then, apply those, but, you know, it's never a one size fits all. You have to kind of um, adapt and customize based on your client base, your customer base, your target market and your organization and your goals. Like, is your goal to be a lifestyle company? Is your goal to be profitable? Is your goal to um, go to the public markets or get acquired? It also depends on what your end game strategy is as well. Uh, so coming to a very interesting question, and uh, we've talked about some part of this women in sales but what we're also seeing and i was interacting with a psychologist very recently where the broad theme that i tried understanding what motivates people and what what i heard as a very uh, established research that has been done is for male uh, employees salary title and then value addition at work and for women it is value addition title and then salary so the motivations they're very, very different, but uh, how do you look at the leadership at the top within sales uh, differing between both the genders? Yes, that's such an interesting question. And I think, you know, when I was coming up in the world, um, you found that a lot of female business leaders or sales leaders felt that they needed to take on the attitude, dynamics, body language of their male counterparts in order to be, you know, successful. It was kind of binary, right? You've got to be aggressive, competitive. But then there's something, since you mentioned psychology, um, which uh, is called the double bind challenge. And that's where if you exhibit those behaviors, you know, people would say, wow, you know, he's really a go-getter and, you know, he's really driven. He's going to take this company, uh, you know, public or it's going to, you know, something great. But if I exhibited those behaviors as a woman, people might say, well, you know, she's a little bit difficult to work with, uh, you know, a, a little bit tough um, or, you know, you could take it from there. Right. So, so women got into kind of a challenge when they didn't lead with their authentic leadership. I was speaking with a woman uh, as part of some research I did for an academic journal just two years ago. And she oversaw, um, she was in an IT services role as sales leadership, very male dominated uh, type of industry, as you know. And uh, she was based in Asia and ran the business there. And her CEO came to her and said, 
you know, I think your leadership style is too soft and you're not, you know, tough enough. And she tried to change and she realized that that just wasn't her. And so it's really about understanding yourself, having that emotional intelligence of what your strong characteristics are and your blind spots in leading with those and then educating others in your sphere about your leadership style, because it just doesn't seem to work. You know, if I were to try to model you and be a leader and that's just not who I am. Right. So I think we're seeing a world now where we do have much more authentic leadership that um, has a broader range of emotions and um, techniques. And I'm happy to happy to say that. It's great to hear. And um, so two very tough questions coming your way. If you had to choose between Forrester and Outreach, what would you choose? Oh my God, that's such a difficult, difficult question. It's so funny because when I was at Forrester and I was a principal analyst, I was like, this is literally the best job in the world. And I absolutely loved it. I went all over the world and I do speeches and I talk to entrepreneurs like yourself. I'm constantly learning and I work with incredibly intelligent people um, in a collaborative way. And But now I'm doing that on the industry side as well. And so I'm lucky that Manny Medina, who is our CEO and founder, and I'd love to introduce you to him as well when you're in the States, if, if that is possible, um, has provided a wonderful platform. So I'm able, able to do quantitative and qualitative research. I'm able to write. I'm able to share my ideas and tell the market as well as our customers and prospects what they need to be prepared for, what's coming down the path, what they need to look out for and how they need to be successful. And then simultaneously, I also do a lot of sales support. Um, which I did both at Forrester and uh, Outreach. And so, you know, having been a, a former SDR, a former CRO and everything in between, I love, I love selling. So I'm going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to say it, it, it's kind of a tie, but um, you always love your current boss best. So I'm going to say Outreach. <laughs> I wasn't born yesterday, Smarth. <laughs> uh, the other one, um, which role do you like more? Innovation evangelist, innovation leader, or CRO? One is very hands-on, always yeah. under pressure. The other one is more thinking, hey, what next? I am a futurist, and I think you know that. I'm like constantly looking about what's next. And the way you do that is you don't necessarily have a crystal ball here, but you look at all of the signs that are happening today and you connect all of the data dots, right? And then you talk to people, smartest people in the world. So I love that. Um, I do, I did love being a CRO as well. And um, what I like about that is, you know, you're pretty much the most important executive in, in the business. Um, you're probably the highest paid executive in the business. And um, you can build a team, uh, a wonderful team and activate those. And so I love coaching and mentoring and stepping back and seeing the people that I brought into the business really, really thrive. And to me, that's super rewarding. So they're two very different roles, but you get rewarded in different ways. And how has your experience as a CRO influenced how you how you think of future again zero to one in many different ways always thinking what next yeah. yeah i mean i think my experience as a cro is that i've been this is the third recession i've been through and i went through the first two 
as uh, first was a sales leader and secondly as general manager and, and CRO. And so not only do I have the ability to do research, connect the dots, put the theoretical things together, but I have my own personal experience of having done the role and knowing what worked dramatically and what dramatically didn't work. <laughs> and so, um, you know, as you predict and look to the future, you can never look away from the past. And so I do draw on my experiences as an operator a lot. I think the other thing that my experience as an operator gives me is much more credibility with the market. And when I have consulting conversations or, you know, I, um, I'm with a press or I go on TV or whatever, people know, like, I've been there, done that. So, you know, it's not that I'm just talking about it because I can't do it. I'm talking about it to bring the rich expertise I have with yeah, the vision yeah. I have for the future. And so the credibility factor is very high. Yeah, yeah. And moving as, um, in, in one of your podcasts, you talk about how sales is very, very difficult for uh, academia to research on. So would love to understand what made you say that maybe a deeper thought process. And is there a way that uh, academia, obviously, because you talk a lot more about research as well. So if yeah. academia research can enable sales leaders, organizations to deliver better. I think what we're starting to see with sales and academia is that academia is catching on that sales is a great career. I think in the past there were sort of you know, some different stereotypes. Is this worthy of getting an academic degree on? And now as the role of selling has changed, you, you know, you have to be, understand data. You have to understand technology. You have to understand how businesses are organized and run. You have to understand channels, routes to market, all this other kind of stuff. Um, so as the role is becoming a little bit more sophisticated, we're seeing uh, colleges across the U.S. We now we have probably a hundred plus colleges that have sales programs. Um, it can be difficult because it's not a theoretical thing. So one of the things that is working, and when I taught at the University of Chicago's Business School, I used a simulation that was created out of Stanford that allowed sellers to go through the typical activities that sellers did, and you know you would see the choices. It was all chance based. They would make choices and some of them were the right choices and they made the wrong choices. They got kind of punished. And the ones who made good choices ended up getting promoted. Then once they got promoted to manager, then they were dealing with forecasting for seven people instead of one. And it got all really complicated. So um, using simulations and other things like that can be really helpful to give people that hands-on experience. And um, Dr. Stephanie Boyer out of Bryant College is someone that I would you know, encourage your followers to, your listeners to follow. She's so innovative. She's also an entrepreneur and she developed a bot-based role play system so that sellers in her uh, programs and others could actually go through a thousand role plays. And then when they go to get hired for a job, um, you know, people can actually know that they, where their weaknesses are based on skills-based assessments, which is you know, very similar to, to what you do, but in a kind of a different setting. Very interesting. And I, I do, um, and in fact, I think we were read, reading some research on role plays and its importance for sales leader. And this was in the context that how today people want to build diverse teams, sales leaders, and specifically in the US. And uh, obviously cost of talent is very high in sales and then there are all, all sorts of problems. 
but there's an atypical pool, which is 70 million Americans not having the four-year degrees, but they're very apt to do the SDR job, BDR job. Uh, so from that perspective, how do you leverage some of these role plays, not just to see who could be hired, but also to train them on the job and ensuring that they ramp up much faster? Well, this is a multi-tiered question. So a very deep question. And I'm, I'm going to you know step back for a moment and I think the selling profession, particularly in B2B sales, uh, is a great equalizer. When I think about social equity, which you know is something that's really important to me, um, people of all kinds of backgrounds um, can be successful. I uh, grew up with uh, parents who were in the Depression in the United States. My dad stood in bread lines to get food for his family when they didn't have food when his father lost his job. My parents were their first uh, in their families to go to college and get college degrees. They got master's degrees. And of course, there was some, um, you know, we, 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 there were some things that were easier for us just because of, uh, you, you know, the color of our skin, so to speak, in the U.S. But sales is one of those great equalizers where anybody can be CEO of their own business. And we're seeing here increasing less and less focus on degrees. I don't think that uh, a bachelor's degree should be required for a sales role anymore. I don't think it's necessary. We're seeing boot camps. You're seeing all kinds of ways that you can actually learn. I mean, the things you can learn on, on YouTube alone are off the charts, right? Um, so if someone has the determination, drive, discipline, curiosity, and can go get some of these certifications, I think that's fantastic. And I think we'll see less and less focus on degrees, more focus on short-term certifications and boot camps and um, skill-based hiring in the future, not just looking for someone who's been in SAS for 10 years, because then you know what you're going to get. Yeah, yeah. And one thing I, and the first time we met and then we had follow-up conversations, I think one thing that has stayed with me is that you have had very different experiences, not just in sales, but overall. You've done investing, you've uh, mentored startups, you've done sales, you've done uh, the SDR job, you've led the team as CRO, you're doing uh, the innovation leader role today. So overall, I, I think and that, and you've been doing well in all of these roles. So help us understand more about your journey. Uh, if you've had, how certain mentors have shaped you, how you have enabled yourself to get to the stage where you are today. And hence that can be learning for, uh, many yeah. listeners and most of the people who would watch this later. Yes. So I have done a lot of things and they are, they have been different. And I'm not even sure if you know this because we're still getting to know each other more deeply, but my first career was as a professional musician and I was a classical musician and an oboist. And I played in the Mexico city Philharmonic and Guadalajara symphony in Mexico for my first job out of college then I got my PhD in musicology and, and music history. And I taught in college and I played in uh, some orchestras in Boston. Um, and then I got, I met some people from Forrester and um, I wanted to do something bigger. And the internet was just coming alive in the business setting. And Forrester was helping businesses understand how the internet was going to change interactions with consumers, business partners, trading partners, and so on. The biggest thing I can tell the folks who are here and anyone who's listening is always be curious, 
I have a tense curiosity. I want to learn more. Um, I'm constantly learning. Um, and I never stop learning. And if you want to see big upside in your career, don't be afraid to take a calculated risk. And so the biggest impact that I've had in my career trajectory has been when I've made a pretty significant jump from one company to another or one type of career to another. And it was a thoughtful jump. It wasn't sort of, you know, arbitrary, but I, uh, I took a risk and um, that's what I, I would encourage your, your listeners, your audience, don't be afraid for, to take a risk and do something different. And even if it fails, you're going to learn something from it and that's going to contribute to who you are as a person in the end. So um, I'm not afraid to take risks. I have a very interesting question. Somebody just sent it on chat. Uh, so you, you mentioned of calculated risk. So how do you, what, what's your mental model to think about these calculated risks? Because all of the things that you have done are very, very different. Yeah. So, so are you somebody who would see zoom in 20 years from now, 30 years from now and say, Hey, these are the gaps. This is what I need to fill. And hence, let me just uh, take different paths. Wow. That's a really tough question. You know, I, I am, I think I'm an INTP, if you follow the Myers-Briggs. And um, so in the end, I am, a, I am kind of driven by a little bit of instinct and gut level. And I have a sense of people and um, trends that's just sort of intrinsic. But at the same time, I use data. So I use data as a really good starting point. So I do a lot of research and I do a lot, I look at data and then I combine that with my instinct and where I want to go personally and professionally in the next five year chunk. And that's how I think about some of these decisions. And, you know, when I left the world as a classical musician, it was a difficult decision because I had played music since I was 12 years old at an elite level. And I just felt that I had accomplished everything that I could accomplish with the given talent that I had for that particular role. And instead of hanging on, I let it go. Um, so having some courage, I think, to forge out a new path, if that's what's right for you personally and professionally. Interesting. And one, one question that comes to my mind is, um, but let me take the question from the audience first. So uh, one of the questions is what, according to you, are the key differentiators between the boomer way of doing sales to millennial way of doing sales? Well, that, that question is going to get me into a lot of trouble because every time I write about it, people tell me I shouldn't really categorize people, right? So, and I know no one likes to be categorized and generalized, but I am a marketer and sometimes it does help to do that um, so that we can educate the market. Um I do think it is different because I'm technically a boomer and, and for your audience, I just slipped in. I was like the last one they let in. Um, but I have more in common with a millennial in terms of my lifestyle and how I, um, my interactions and usage of technology. So I call myself a boomer reboot. So look, I mean, I hate to make these kinds of generalizations. I think the boomers who understand the moment that we're in the fact that it's transformational and the fact that traditional ways of selling 
hiring and doing business um, are not going to get you there in the future. They maybe got you here. Um, those folks are going to be incredibly successful. Um, so I think, you know, on the millennial side, those folks tend to be very comfortable with the digital transformation, the engaging on social, the um, utilization of synchronous and asynchronous video and things of that nature. Um, and where you see some skill gaps on, on that side or on the Z side is um, they don't know how to read the room or they don't just have quite a much the art of the deal, right? Sales is an art and a science, right? Even though I'm leaning into the science a lot right now, there is an art of it. So you need to understand when to lean in and lean out, when to push your customer and to back off. And, and smart, if you're selling and you don't have an uncomfortable moment, you're probably not really selling because you're not really asking that hard question. So um, I think having the ability to ask a tough question. And we see this with uh, some of the folks who are early in their sales career where, you know, maybe they never actually asked someone for a date in person and it was all done by text or app or whatever. But the, the moment, if I were to ask you out on a date in the moment before you say yes or no, is like, you know, butterflies. And then I get my answer. Well, that contributes to sort of the strength to be able to ask that tough sales question. So I don't want to generalize exactly by demographics, but those are some of the different challenges I see um, for folks at different stages of their sales career. There are two very interesting things. So one, uh, and both coming from your answer. One, uh, so I was reading a research that said, uh, so a lot of sales reps were interviewed and they were asked a series of questions. And these are across geographies. One conclusion that was made is countries that had more dating culture uh, the sales reps who are better. <laughs> oh, I totally believe that. I totally believe that. That's really interesting. I hadn't heard that, but it makes all the sense in the world. So that was one. And uh, the, the second one was uh, when people start their career. And this is when I was also trying to get uh, started with sales because I come from management consulting background. I've never done B2B sales. B2B was too far. Sales was too far from what Typically, uh, I would have imagined for myself, but as a founder, you uh, you have to do it. So when I started, uh, I was reading an article and it said, sales reps, while sales is art and science, first they have to learn the art and later comes the science. Because once you have to understand exactly how you said, when to lean forward, backward, when to push, when not to push, this is more art. And later on, you have to understand how do you optimize your art, which is through science, research, data, and all of those things. Yeah, I like that. And I agree with that. Um, it was very interesting conversation with you. And uh, most of the questions that were asked by the audience were very interesting ones as well. Uh, one last question that we have for you, and we're mindful of the time. Uh, throughout your career and all the years that you spent uh, in SaaS, B2B, um, mentoring a lot of founders, interacting with them, what is your one piece of advice for them, uh, for the people who are thinking to build their GTM motions, build their B2B SaaS, build uh, sales-led organizations? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the same thing with an entrepreneur, right? Um, you have to be incredibly driven. You have to be incredibly disciplined. You have to have great people around you. And you can't allow yourself to be halted by setbacks and failures. So the people who are successful always find a way 
to overcome challenging markets, challenging economies, challenging competitive dynamics, and you just don't take no for an answer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's very true. I, I think uh, entrepreneurial journey is rewarding in many ways, but it does teach you this attitude that, hey, whatever the situation is, we'll figure it out. And that's I very agree. common saying. Yeah, uh, I but, agree. But, but loved having this conversation with you. Thank you so much for spending uh, your time with us. And I'm sure that all the listeners out there who attend chat today and who would also hear in the future would love the insights that you shared with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you everyone for uh, tuning in the webinar and spending your time. Thank you so much.